Now as you know today uh, is the first Advent and I think it's very easy at Advent time to go straight into the birth of Jesus Christ but um, if you read the Gospels you see that God saw fit that uh, the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus Christ was heralded by a man called John the Baptist and it's uh, sometimes easy to forget about John the Baptist so I think it would be appropriate for this week to look at the birth of John the Baptist and then next week to look at the prophecy of his father Zacharias and then go into the birth of Christ so I'm going to read from Luke chapter 1 verse 56 to 66 let's all stand to hear God's word <coughs> Luke 1 verse 56 to 66 and Mary stayed with her, that being Elizabeth, about three months and then she returned home. And the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. And she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy towards her and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day, when they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias, after the father, but his mother answered and said, No, indeed. He should be called John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to the father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet. And he wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he began to speak in praise of God. And fear came upon all those living around them. And these matters were being talked about in all the hill countries of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. May God bless his word as we consider that just in a moment. Please be seated. <coughs> Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you for your word, and particularly at Advent time, as we consider the birth of Jesus Christ but also very importantly the, the birth of John the Baptist because you saw fit to have a herald for the Messiah a herald for Jesus Christ being born into this world and as we consider this passage here in Luke chapter 1 we ask that you'll open it to our hearts that you'll help us to know how we can apply the truths to our lives so that we can worship you more meaningfully as a result of your word and I pray that you'll open my mouth to speak your word for your glory Amen <clears throat> Our passage today contains a really a straightforward account of the birth of John the Baptist, as you'd heard just read. And at first reading, you might think it's about Zacharias and a miracle that enabled him to speak. Remember, Zacharias was struck dumb and deaf because of his unbelief, and suddenly now he can speak. Or you might actually think, well, it's, a, it's an account really of the fact that Elizabeth, an old woman, she wasn't a young woman, giving birth. Or perhaps you might think that it's about John, because um, very significant life and ministry. But as always, this is actually all about God. It's the hand of the Lord, as Luke says, that Luke wants us to see here. In other words, it's the hand of the Lord that God himself wants us to see here. And it's not just true of this account, it's true of everything in the Bible. It's all about God. Now, I mean, there are other characters in the Bible that we read about, and it's an amazing account of their lives, but the whole point of giving us their lives is because it's an account of God. 
Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The Bible is the testimony of the Lord, God's really only self-disclosure. First and foremost, then, the Bible is a revelation of God, his own word about himself. So behind Zacharias and Elizabeth, and the, the amazing account there, behind Mary, behind John, is this great, this mighty revelation of God, of his nature, his character, his work, his purpose, his will. God is being revealed in all of this. In fact, at all points in the Bible, God is teaching us the truth about himself. He's the one dominating figure in biblical revelation. It's a book about God. It starts with God, it ends with God, and everything in between, all about God. And that's why Luke makes this comment, particularly in verse 66. At the end of the passage it says, For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Everything in this account of John the Baptist gives evidence of the hand of the Lord, this intervention of God. And certainly his hand in the miraculous striking of Zacharias' death and mute, which was a judgment on his unbelief, and also when he was delivered and he could speak. The hand of God is everywhere. And Luke wants us to be really sure that he sees it, and that's why he says there, the hand of the Lord was with him. In fact, Luke, writing uh, as a historian, is writing a divine history inspired by the self-revealing God, and his concerns is that we know that divine history. He's particularly concerned that we see the purpose of God and the plan of God in the redemption that's coming with Jesus. So he focuses on this amazing supernatural events with Mary, obviously, with Elizabeth. We get uh, two miracle conceptions, two miracle births, and various miracles around them. But as I say, the reality is that God was acting in human history. Remember... God had been silent for 400 years. There's a 400 year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He hasn't done a miracle that's recorded in over 400 years. Or perhaps uh, you could say he hasn't done a series of miracles in over 500 years. He hasn't sent a, a visible angel to earth in the same amount of time. But suddenly, now he's acting in history. Luke tells us that God now is revealed. And he reveals something very, very important, the coming of the Saviour into the world. Now in Israel, a birth was a cause for great joy and celebration, obviously, as it is today. But even more so, because this was an old man, and this was an old woman, and they were never able to have children. And it wasn't just any child, this was a unique child, because it was said that this child would be the forerunner to the Messiah... And that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in the womb. And he would turn many of the hearts of the children of Israel towards righteousness and prepare the way for the Messiah. So this child was the last Old Testament prophet. So it's not just any child. So there was a great celebration, and there was a great deal to celebrate. However, as, well, as much really as their joy should be, Ours today should be even greater. Because they were still asking the question, if you notice in verse 66, what then will this child turn out to be? They didn't know for sure what was going to happen. All they knew was that this was amazing. These miracles, this child, he must be something special. So they're asking, I wonder what he's going to be like. I wonder what he's going to do. Now with hindsight we knew the answer to that very important question. We know what he was like, we know about his life, we know that 
The impact he made was amazing. We know that all of Jerusalem and Judea poured out to hear him preach when he grew older and he started this ministry. We know that the population were getting baptised with the baptism of repentance, confessing sin and getting ready for the Messiah. We know what a preacher of righteousness he became. We also know that he confronted sinners in high places and that cost him his life. We know that he was beheaded for his faithfulness to preach repentance. We also know that when he saw Jesus he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we know today that this child was the forerunner of the Messiah. We also know about the Messiah, obviously, that he came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose from the dead on the third day, that he ascended into heaven and one day he's going to return. We know that he sent his Holy Spirit. We know all of this. So if their joy was great, just for the fact that they thought, well, this child is going to be amazing, our joy should be far, far greater. Now Luke wonderfully mingles, if you read Luke's Gospel, I would encourage you to read the first few chapters of Luke as we lead up to Christmas. Luke wonderfully mingles two conception births narratives together, Mary and Elizabeth. First he gives us this wonderful account of the Gabriel, the angel coming to Zacharias, and the miracle conception between Zacharias and Elizabeth. And then he moves on in chapter 2 to the miracle conception that occurred in the womb of Mary. <coughs> now in this passage though, he goes back to the account of Zacharias and Elizabeth to tell the birth narrative of John. As he weaves the two together. God, as I say, putting himself on display, breaking into history in an astounding way. And Luke is very precise in a very sequential way. Remember, he's a historian. And he gives us a birth, a circumcision, a naming and a praise. And he does that twice, once with Elizabeth, once with Mary. And as we look at this particular passage before us, we see that God puts him on display, himself on display, in three ways. The first thing we notice here is that the promise of God is true, and that's very important. And then we see that the purpose of God is gracious, and the power of God is wondrous. So I want to look at those three things. The promise of God is true, the purpose of God is gracious, the power of God is wondrous. First of all, the promise of God is true. That's what this account shows. Now Mary, if you remember, received the word from the angel Gabriel when she was probably about 13 years old. And in these days, 2,000 years ago, in this particular society, uh, a girl particularly would be betrothed and ready for married 13, perhaps 14 years old. So Mary was around 13 or 14 years old. She's betrothed to a young man. They haven't consummated the relationship. They haven't been married yet. Therefore, when she was told by the Holy Spirit that she was pregnant, she realised that this was going to cause some problems. This would be very, very difficult for others to accept and understand. I mean, if a 13-year-old girl appears pregnant, there are a number of explanations. But having your child planted in your womb by God, that's not usually one of the explanations. So this was not an easy sell. You can imagine the gossip, the people looking at her, and remember, this is 2,000 years ago in a very different society than we have today. And Mary was very alone in this. There were many people who just wouldn't have believed her. If a 13-year-old gets pregnant and she says, well, um, I'm still a virgin and it's, uh, it's, it's God. 
I mean, that's hard to get across to people. Most people would have thought, oh yeah, really, come on. <laughs> but there was one woman who would understand. And that was one who was in a similar situation. Not the same situation, but similar. So when Mary was informed that Elizabeth, who happened to be her cousin, was also pregnant by the power of God, and another miraculous birth was about to happen, she immediately went to the one woman who would understand her situation, who could vouch for the reality, who would believe her. And she stayed with Elizabeth for three months. Apparently from the flow of the text she left in the ninth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And it says in verse 56 she went to her home. And then it says, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she brought forth a son. And her neighbours and relatives heard how the Lord had displayed his great mercy towards her and they were rejoicing with her. Luke, uh, again as a historian, is very careful to choose his words to prove, to show us that God's word is true. We should never question that. It says in um, Numbers 23 verse 19, this isn't just something that we're told in the New Testament. The Old Testament true also says, God is not a man that he should lie. In other words, if God says something in his word, it's true. No matter how difficult that word happens to be. If God says that a virgin is going to have a baby, it's true. As far-fetched as many people would think that happens to sound, that just sounds ridiculous. But if God says it, it's true. Joshua 23 verse 14, Not one word of all the good words that the Lord your God has spoken concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled, not one of them has failed. And that is emphasising the fact that everything that God says is true. Not just the fact that he says that this virgin would have a baby, that this old man and this old woman would have a child. Everything he says. 1 Kings 8 verse 56, Blessed be the Lord according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promises which he has promised. That's why Isaiah calls him in Isaiah 65 verse 16, the God of truth. It says in the New Testament, Hebrews 6 verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie. And Jesus gave attestation to that in John 17 verse 17. He says, your word is true. Your word is truth. Always remember, whenever God speaks, he always, always speaks the truth. Next time you see that verse that you don't like, that doesn't fit with today's society and what some people are doing... Don't question that verse, question society and the ones doing it. Because God does not lie. God always tells the truth. This is a problem these days, as I mentioned before, that really started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were there and the devil says, you know, did God really say that? Can you really trust what he says? Can you really trust everything that God says? But Luke says here, every single word of the Bible is critically important to us because it's spoken by God himself. We better believe it, we better obey it. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you were given the name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. In other words, God said it, so it's hard for this for you to accept. And, and Elizabeth and uh, Zacharias would have had a hard problem accepting this, that they could have a child. And obviously Mary would have had the same problem. But if God says it, it's true. And Elizabeth obviously brings forth a son. And they were rejoicing. So the angel said from God, you will have a son, many will rejoice. That's exactly what happened. 
God's word is true. This tells you what you need to know about Zacharias. This tells you what you need to know about about, uh, Elizabeth. This tells you what you need to know about John. But more than that, as I said at the beginning, this is also telling you what you need to know about God. And when he speaks, it's true. That's really the important issue. So verse 57 says, the time had come. This was a, a monumental moment. The birth of John the prophet who was the forerunner to the Messiah. This was a launch event for the coming of the Saviour into the world. The time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she brought forth a son, exactly as God said through the angel Gabriel. And Elizabeth was obviously amazingly happy, she was rejoicing. She'd been unable to have children. So just the very fact that she had a child, she was absolutely over the moon, she was absolutely ecstatic. But even more... She rejoiced because this child that she'd been given was not just any child. This child was a forerunner to the Messiah who would turn back many of the sons of Israel to God. She was told that. God himself was not just giving her the ability to have a child, which would have been amazing, but a particularly unique and special child. And the neighbours heard that the Lord had displayed his mercy, great mercy towards her, so they were rejoicing with her. Again, precisely, exactly as Gabriel had said, when they heard that the Lord had displayed his mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is God's favour, God's kindness, God's loving action to undeserving people. And that's really the key. Mercy is favour to undeserving people. God is good, we read that in Psalm 73, by nature he's good, he shows favour, he shows kindness, Uh, the Old Testament word of hesed, which is a loving kindness. So God acted towards this elderly couple with kindness, even though they, like all people, everyone is undeserving from God, but nevertheless he still reached out. Mary knew it and she celebrated God's mercy too. We see in uh, verse 50, Mary says his mercy is upon generation after generation. And on into her praise in verse 54, she mentioned the fact that God has given help to Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mercy is very important, uh, very key to this passage. Zacharias, uh, later on in verse 72, says God shows mercy. Mercy is a theme here. Sinners who recognise their unworthiness, receive God's loving action, even though they're undeserving, because God gives mercy. And when the people realised that God had been merciful to this elderly couple, they came and they shared their joy, which is natural. God who promised, Hebrews 10 verse 23, is faithful. And it's important again, because God also promises salvation to us. He promises to... That whoever comes to him he will receive. He promises that if we confess our sins he will forgive us. He promises us heaven. So we really want to know, does he keep his promises? It's important. Yes he does. His words are always true. And so we learn from the outset of this account that the promise of God is true. That's the first thing. The second thing we learn is the purpose of God is gracious. We see in verse 59 and following, it came about that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. And his mother answered and said, No, indeed, he should be called John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. And they made signs to the father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and he wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. 
That shows you that God is gracious. We shouldn't be shocked that God is gracious. That's all over the Bible. We see that everywhere. But this passage points out in a wonderful way that God is gracious. We know that God is a God of grace. His purpose towards sinners is gracious. He purposes that we will have salvation. And it's all about grace. God in fact allowed sin that he might display his grace and thereby be glorified for his grace. And God delights in being gracious. He delights in giving us what we don't deserve. He delights in saving us from death and hell. Ephesians 1 verse 9 describes God in this way. God has kind intentions towards us. Now remember God is infinitely holy. He hates sin. He hates persistent sinners. But still has kind intentions towards us. He still offers us mercy. He still offers us grace. That's why Peter, 1 Peter 5 verse 10 says he is the God of all grace. In fact it says in Hebrews 4 verse 6, when you go to the throne of God, approaching his holy majestic throne, you are approaching the throne of grace. And grace is described in the Bible as great, sovereign, rich, exceeding, manifold, all-sufficient, abundant and glorious. And as God's people we're going to be exposed to this grace, not just now but in all eternity. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that in eternity he's going to pour out the riches of his grace and kindness towards us. That's why in 1 Peter 3 verse 7, uh, Peter says we are heirs of grace. That's our inheritance. Grace is our inheritance. So this shows us that God's grace comes through in this uh, small conflict that ensues next. Because the eighth day arrived, on the eighth day um, they would circumcise every Jewish boy. Circumcision was firstly for a physical reason. Their medical records in history show that Jewish women have had the lowest rates of cervical cancer because of male circumcision. So circumcision had a benefit physically. And that's one thing that God often did with his people in order to keep them going to achieve his messianic purposes. He gave them many medical formulas. You read about them in Leviticus and Numbers. Many dietary laws. And you might wonder, why did God say don't eat? pigs why did God say don't do this why did God say don't do that well first of all for physical reasons for being sensible I mean we even know today you've got to be careful how you cook a pig 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago you could get some serious problems if you didn't cook pigs properly so you can see why God protected them from unnecessary infections and illnesses so there was usually a physical significance to various things and there was a physical significance to circumcision but as always God's commands and prescriptions have more than one reason the second reason for circumcision was that God wanted a special mark on his people that nobody else had that identified them with the Abrahamic covenant so there was a national purpose as well so there's a physical purpose, national purpose, and thirdly there was a spiritual symbol too. After Adam sinned, everyone who was ever born is sinful and symbolically that is passed on through procreation. So God also gave Israel an object lesson, a, a picture if you like, that they need cleansing at the profound level of sin. So it was the eighth day, and it was the time to circumcise the child. There are no necessary Old Testament prescriptions of who does it and how it's to be done, but the, it became a tradition amongst the Jews that there could be, or needed to be in, in many cases, at least ten witnesses to a circumcision. So there was a crowd there. That was the tradition. And in the process, this crowd decided that they should all participate in naming the child. And they all decided, quite logically, name him after the father. 
because that's what everyone used to do. So they had this discussion amongst themselves, name the child after Zacharias. And just as a footnote, the, the naming of a child on the eighth day, and um, that's not in the Old Testament. There aren't any rules about when you name a child, and the Romans did used to do it on the ninth day, the Greeks did it on the seventh or the tenth, so the Jews might have thought, well, everyone else is doing it on a particular day, and the seventh, tenth, eighth, seems about right. Also, actually, Moses was named on the eighth day when he was circumcised, so there's an Old Testament precedent for it too. That's what they did. Now, as I've already mentioned, it wasn't unusual for other people to participate in naming a child. You see in Ruth chapter 4 verse 17 when Naomi had a baby boy, the people all collectively together named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And names were considered to be very, very important. So naming this child Zacharias would have been an honour to the father. It was a family name. Names were important. Sometimes they were chosen to describe physical features. Um, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob was called... um, Jacob because it means one who grabs the heel. Esau was called Esau because it means hairy. So some Jewish names were designed to express um, physical features. Some were designed to express joy. Samuel means asked for. And that's expressing the fact that she'd asked for this child and suddenly she's got this child. And it seemed right to this group around John to name the baby Zacharias. But then, verse 60, we say the mother says, oh no, no. We're going to call him John. And all the people would have thought, what kind of an answer is that? What's Elizabeth got against her husband? And who does Elizabeth think she is to go against what we always do to name the child after the husband? But she was adamant, no indeed, he will be called John. Why did she say that? Well if you remember back in verse 13 when the angel came and appeared to Zacharias, he said, you're going to have a child, you and Elizabeth, and you will name him John. So God named this child. The angel told them the name. And why does the name John matter? I mean, God doesn't usually get involved in naming people's children. Why was this such an issue? Why does he have to be called John? Well, John is a short sort of version of the longer name, Johanan. And the first part of that is Jeho, which is uh, God, Jehovah. And the second part means grace. So the word John means God is gracious. And God wanted to name this child God is gracious because God's purpose was through that child and through the Messiah, he would declare to the world that he is gracious. That's why John was called John. What you see here is God telling us that his promise is true and his purpose is gracious. Of course the people don't quite get that. They said, why John? I mean, none of your relatives are called John. Where does that name even come from? And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who's called by that name in verse 61. Why not honour your husband? Pulling a, a name out of the air doesn't seem right. So they decided to go over ahead and go to the father. Now remember, Zacharias can't hear and he can't speak. He was struck miraculously by God. He was made deaf and mute. So what they did, verse 62, they made signs. So they started making these signs. You know, what do you think? And he responded, verse 63, he asked for a tablet. For nine months, he's been having to write everything down. The word there in the Greek, it it means it's describing really a board that was covered with wax, and they would have a sharp object, and they would write in the wax. And then when they'd finished, they'd smooth it all off, and they'd have it again. So Zacharias has been carrying this board around for nine months. 
Every time he wanted to communicate, he had to write it down. So he wrote down, his name is John. And they were all astonished, and they didn't understand why. The boy, though, was named by God. His name was going to be John, because through him, the grace of God would explode onto the world. Names, as I say, are very important. Jesus has a unique name. Jesus means he saves. That's what the name means. So first you get Zacharias. Zacharias' name means God remembers his promise. Then you get Elizabeth. God is the faithful, absolute faithful one. So in other words, God will keep that promise. Then you get John. God is gracious. And then you get Jesus, Jehovah saves. The whole gracious purpose of God unfolds just in those names. They're telling us something. Let's move on then to the third point. The power of God is wondrous. We've seen that the promise of God is true, the purpose of God is gracious. Now we see, thirdly, the power of God is wondrous. Something happens immediately. Verse 64. At once, his mouth, Zacharias's mouth, was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. The miracle was instantaneous. Zacharias can hear and speak because he was now obedient to name the child John. And God's word continue exclaims, power, Psalm 62 verse 11 for example, power belongs to God. Over and over we see that. Matthew 20, 19 verse 26, all things are possible with God. Luke 1 verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. Genesis 18 verse 14, nothing is too hard for God. That's his name, El Shaddai, God Almighty. God has the power to sustain, he has the power to govern, the power to give life, the power to take life, the power for miracles, power for resurrection. All powerful. His power is wondrous. And that's what we see here. God is awesome. And notice the little phrase in verse 64, very important, and at once. This is a miracle phrase repeated throughout Luke's gospel and throughout the book of Acts, which Luke also writes. When you look at the healings of the New Testament, they were all instantaneous. There was none of this TV evangelist approach where they say, well, you've been healed. And you think, well, no, they haven't. But they say, go home, claim your healing, you'll feel better in a few weeks. That's not how God heals. God's healings were instantaneous in every situation that we read of in the New Testament. That's why the at once is a critical component all the way through Luke's Gospel when he tells us about the healings. And that's why Zacharias immediately began to speak. What did he say? He began to speak in praise of God. And you can imagine for nine months, this has been pent up, and the damn person, he just praises God. This praise turns to prophetic praise in verse 67, and we'll be looking at that next week. But the whole experience was so overwhelming, and the power of God was so great and so incredible that he just speaks out this praise to God. And it says in verse 65, And fear then came upon all those living around, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. So everyone's talking about this, far and wide, all the, all the surrounding areas, everyone's talking about it. And the fear of sense of awe was in recognition of this divine intervention. They know that God is involved in this. This wasn't normal. This was miraculous. This was amazing. What caused this all? Well, obviously the miracle conception. These people couldn't have children. Then the miracle birth. Then the divine name given from God and this powerful instantaneous healing of a man who couldn't speak and couldn't hear. That's what caused the awe. And that was just the beginning. 
that's not the, the only time you're going to see awe as you read through the rest of the Gospel of Luke. It sets the stage for all the awesome things that are going to happen as Jesus comes and he does amazing things, absolutely amazing things. See all of the same again in the book of Acts as well. The power of God is awesome. They could see it in the miracle of the birth, the miracle of the healing right before their eyes and everyone's talking about it. And the name of the baby, God is gracious. And that baby was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and he was going to be used to turn the hearts of the people back to God and announce, most importantly, the arrival of the Messiah. The Messiah was on the verge of coming. And how do we know that's true? Because of the miracle's conception, the birth, the healing and the instantaneous miracle. Verse 66 says, as the people were there, saw it, it began to spread and they talked about it all around the hillsides of Judea. It became the main preoccupation of thought, the main topic of conversation, the wonder, the awe, announcing really that God is wondrous. God put his power on display, he put his purpose on display which is gracious, he put his promise on display which is true. And then I repeat at the end of verse 66 it says, For the hand of the Lord was certainly with them. Very common expression in the Old Testament, but we see it here in the New, indicating that God's mighty, powerful presence, God's holy presence was there. And the in, this, you know, amazing, uh, inescapable conclusion that Luke makes is, is that God was now acting redemptively to save us graciously in human history. God, after a 400 year gap, was now moving in history. In other words, Christmas was coming. Let's come to God in prayer. Father, we thank you that we read here that Christmas was coming. And it wasn't just when Jesus was born that we see that. Before he was born, John was born. And John was to announce the arrival of the Messiah. And John means God is gracious, and you are gracious, and we thank you for that. And most importantly, you're gracious as we see through the birth of Jesus Christ, who was born after John and went on to do amazing things because he was the Messiah himself. He is God in the flesh. And we thank you for that Christmas message that we know. Help us to understand it. Help us to proclaim it. We thank you, Father. Amen. Okay, as I said, we're going to be singing now, but before we do so, let's stand and share the grace with one another. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, evermore. Amen. Now, as you know, we um, announced earlier...